0: We are under attack. It is an attack against western democracies and on the institutions that bind them.
1: What Russia is much more interested in doing is depicting the West as a failure. Reaching
0: president they were trying to protect their enormous wealth.
1: This is Kremlin File. Welcome, everyone, to Kremlin File, and a big, huge welcome to Francis Farrell of the uh, Kiev Independent, a war reporter, okay, that uh, is keeping us all informed on what is happening on various fronts, not just on the battlefield, but also, no, you know, at home. Hi, Francis, welcome.
0: Hi, it's great to be here.
1: Thank you for coming. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Uh, especially for giving us your time, Francis, which I know is very precious. Okay, these days, Francis. I, if I cr- uh, remember correctly, uh, you had just come back uh, some time ago, maybe from Bakhmut, if I'm not mistaken. Correct? Yeah.
0: So not from the the city itself because the yeah. the, the city limits are city you know, limits. occupied by um by Russian forces, but just from the the front line in that area in in Ukraine they call it the Bakhmut, uh direction I guess uh, so from front lines near the the flanks and also just yeah right right up against uh, where the city itself is because since the Russians took it um, they took the last streets of of this city that doesn't really exist anymore in May. Mm-hmm. Um, since then it's actually been the ukrainians moving forward around that area.
1: Yeah. What what can you tell us a little bit about from your experience there but I'm sure that you've gone other times you no know, as well. Can you tell us a little bit about the conditions and also the morale of mm-hmm. you know the the ukrainian forces and what's happening?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a good place to start I guess because that was um my I guess, strongest impression that i felt that i needed to write about the most uh, from that area it can get a bit repetitive if you if you go out on these frontline trips and you just write that this you know these soldiers are still fighting as they have been doing for for 18 months but it was an interesting time to go because uh everyone's watching the counteroffensive of course which is going on um mostly in the south towards uh, the Zaporizhia oblast we're all, we're all keeping an eye on that but in Bakhmut, around that area, Ukraine is also moving forward. But unlike the southern front line where it's a lot of these new uh, brigades that have been trained in NATO countries and equipped with the Western equipment going forward in this super high stakes, all, all or nothing kind of battle, around Bakhmut you have the units that have been there for a long, long time. So at least at least since winter, some of them over a year, just in that one area fighting So these are really Ukraine's veteran hardened kind of brigades and units that are fighting there. And uh, they bring a very interesting perspective because they uh, see the war in a very different way to what we see in the news cycle, where we kind of tend to fixate upon... Um, big movements back and forth, the big idea of, of a counteroffensive. Whereas for them, it's true they have the initiative now, and so there is that optimism. So we're going forward, and, and you know, in, in in a few weeks, in a few months, you know, we could be the ones uh, threatening to take Bakhmut again. But on the other hand, um, they they see it very much not through uh, any kind of rose-tinted goggles uh in terms of this being the big push and and victory is is on the horizon or something like that for them it's more of the same the same grind that they've been going through uh for for months and if you know the fact that they're attacking now rather than defending it 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 doesn't necessarily make their life (laughs) any easier in the sense we we remember the winter when it was this brutal attack uh, from Russian forces, especially Wagner, these human waves, these prisoner troops moving forward. Um, and defending it against that was obviously very hard. But attacking is also, is also hard. It's potentially even harder because you have to go forward against uh, fortified positions through minefields. Um, and the casualties you take are potentially higher as well. And then you have to hold those positions against counterattacks, against artillery. And so yeah for them it's it's in a sense business as usual um and and you can really feel that in in your conversations that that you have with with the guys there and and as for morale it, again it, it paints a very interesting picture about where we are in the war and and where we could be in the future because um again they've been here for months potentially over a year Many of them haven't really got a chance to to be uh, you know, to, to have a rest. Some of them get a chance to get a few days' vacation, maybe 10 days. they go back and see their family, maybe less. Um, but their unit as a whole, you know, you would normally expect after that amount of intense fighting that they would be at some point rotated. At some point they would spend a bit of time in the in the rear to to rest and recuperate um but, but they haven't had the chance to do that, and that's you know maybe you could blame someone for that, but it's also the, just the reality of, of what this war is like what at the ways? moment which which yeah. hasn't got any less intense than it has uh then you know since 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 they arrived in this area so in that sense um a lot of them you know speak quite openly, like you know we're pretty tired obviously um some of them you know especially the infantry you have arguably the hardest job you know day in day out going and fighting in these trenches you know they say you know i just really like to go home i'd really like to have a rest Mm -hmm. but on the other hand um they also say that you know we we know our job we know what we signed up for and and so even though you know the the larger discussions that they're they're basically solved by the the politicians they're solved by people up there that, that that we don't have mm-hmm. contact with but we know our job our job is to is to be here and fight if it's to defend we'll defend if it's to attack well we'll attack we'll go forward whatever the orders are um and, and in that sense you know i didn't i didn't get any impression of of, of some kind of deep crisis or fatigue mm. there, was, there was one guy who said uh, a commander who said you know he finds the, the topic of war fatigue quite quite absurd to be honest it's you know saying it's the it's the armchair generals it's the it's the civilians who who can't leave the country who'd want to do something else uh they're the ones who are getting tired but we don't have time to get tired we we will get tired when when the war's over maybe yeah,
1: yeah that's a lot of people that we talked to Gunther, that we've talked to before they just and even some of our friends doing all sorts of different kind of jobs uh in ukraine Uh, for the war effort and to keep everything going and they often say no you know who has time to get tired you just go forward right Mm -hmm. and uh, and this is what you're doing uh francis are these the kind of uh, men and women they come from everywhere they come from all different walks of life is that true
0: yeah 100 um so i met people literally from all corners of ukraine north south east and west some of them from, you know, young guys from a little village in the Carpathian Mountains. Some mm. uh, some people from, from Donetsk itself, you know, who, who had left uh, back in 2014. And they all have very different perspectives, I guess, of, of what they're fighting for. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's definitely the conversations with those soldiers who are from the occupied territories that they... Mm that they have almost like more, more resolve and more drive than, than anyone because, because they know that if this is what, what we're doing, this is what we're going to go forward. I remember just before the counteroffensive started back in May, uh, I met a father and a son. And there were a few of those little pairs of yeah. fathers and sons or uncles and nephews in that unit because it was the local territorial defense unit uh, in Zaporizhia. So that's on the southern front line where the counteroffensive is really intense at the moment and and they were from this village which was um I think about 20 kilometers back from the front line in in occupied territory and so you know they, they don't have anything else to to go back to um if if the war suddenly ends and and suddenly the the front line gets gets stuck where it is they it's, they they went they were living peacefully in that village then it started, they immediately went to fight. Their village was occupied in the first uh, week or two of the, the full-scale war, and, and, and here they are. So, yeah, it's it's always... And, and yeah, people people who, who are from villages who lived very simple lives in that sense, but also, you know, people who are just very um, well-traveled, intellectual, you know, people who had businesses overseas and, and so on, but they still all made
1: the same decision. Yeah, yeah. I remember seeing a professor teaching from the trenches, mm-hmm. and uh, and I thought that was absolutely incredible. Thinking of the professors that I work with, <laughs> but just – it's it was just it, – it, it hit me because it was something that I could identify with uh, as well. This is just why incredible. Ukraine
2: will win. <laughs> yeah. This is Ukraine will win, and um, they're not um, – you know, uh, you see it just from how many – from all walks of life who understand what this is about. Yeah. Before we move on, um, you're in Kiev, and, I mean, I have the air alert, you know, uh, app and constantly mm-hmm. uh, have it going off. And, I mean, Russia's conducting terrorist attacks across Ukraine literally on an hourly basis. Sometimes it's multiple alerts coming through an hour. What is the mood like in Kiev? How are you? How are you personally holding up and doing your work? Um, And can you tell us a little bit about Mm -hmm. that?
0: Yeah, so uh, Kiev, honestly, Kiev in summer is is a beautiful place, whether it's wartime and and peacetime. And uh, if you look around, if you walk around the streets during summer here, it it seems pretty normal. I'm sure you've read that and heard that uh, from people before, um, you know, talk about you know some some people like to take advantage of this, you know and 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 make viral tweets about about people in Kiev partying or going to McDonald's mm-hmm. and saying, why are we giving them billions of dollars? but we know how how silly that is um so yeah on on the surface it it looks pretty normal obviously um it's a well known fact that Kiev is the most it's the best defended uh, city when it comes to air defense so uh we're lucky in the sense that even if there is a, a mass missile strike here it's very very unlikely that you know that anyone will be hurt um well i mean some people are hurt regularly but but that's just a, a few a few at a time and, and most of those missiles uh, get shot down it it was it was really intense back in may for some reason um mm-hmm. they decided to lob missiles at us here basically every day i remember i was coming to this office uh one day during you know in the middle of the day and bright daylight i was on on the the call for our weekly meeting which i was trying to get to a bit late and suddenly I hear explosions, I hear the alarms straight after the explosions and I look up and I see these um I'm pretty sure they were the Patriot missiles. They were, you know, flying up and one after the other and knocking um Russian ballistic missiles out of the sky and everyone was popping out of their cafes and, and looking up, some people running in, some people making the stupid decision to, to film it, um, which can get you in big trouble here of course. Um, but uh yeah, in the last few months, it's a few weeks, I would say it's been pretty quiet. About a week ago, there was there was uh, one more big attack which woke me up at around 3:30. And a friend of mine, actually, uh, one of the missiles was shot down right over his his building. So he, uh, yeah, when on one side his windows were all blown out and cars were on fire and and so on, uh, but he he was okay because he was on the other side, uh, thankfully. But yeah, personally, for me, when when this kind of thing happens i find it hard to get myself out of bed and go to the metro or 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 something else i guess because that's that's because i have a bit of a different understanding of of risk and danger having been to frontline areas where you hear explosions all the time and there's a much higher level of risk just because of the distance you are to to the russians so closer you are the more they can hit you with and and air defence is not going to stop an artillery shell, so I'm I'm quite used to that. You know, you can argue that's a good or a bad thing that I'm used to it and a bit desensitised. Um, so when it comes to strikes on Kiev, I'm I'm not too too shaken up. But it is, of course, yeah, you 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 do sit up and realise when you hear something that is as loud as as what you would have heard near Bakhmut or something, and, and it it definitely keeps that in your mind.
2: Thank you for that. Now, um, moving on, um, we saw U.S. and Europe delay um, uh, weapons deliveries, and they were negotiating and going back and forth should Ukraine have long-range missiles, should they have tanks, and literally, it was like a several-month delay until uh, these systems were approved. Over that time, Russia was basically fortifying the front, mining it to the point that, you know, we see that it took uh, extra long for the counteroffensive to um, kick off. How much of an impact did that delay in the West have to what is happening now? And how much quicker would Ukraine have been able to make advances if not, you know, completely kick Russia out had these weapons Mm -hmm. been delivered on time? Mm
0: Uh yeah, it's a very obviously one of the what you bring up is one of the key, I think, things that will be looked back upon when we when we talk about this war and, and how it went, the ebb and flow and of 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 the front line of the territory being taken or lost. Uh of course when you look at the counteroffensive itself, I guess we can go into more detail later, uh, but you know, it's not only just about uh, blaming the West and not having uh the necessary number of weapons. That's an important factor, but you can't ignore you know, the fact that Russia has a say in this as well. It's also a question of how well they, they defended, and it's also a question of the strategic decisions made by Ukraine, and some of them may not have been the best ones. But uh, going back to what you originally said, I think that political moment is, has been almost decisive uh, in, in many ways. The, the fact that there was such a delay uh, not only a delay, yes, they had a lot of time uh, to to politically make that decision and, and organize, um, basically motivate their policy of aid to, to Ukraine by let's give them as much as possible, as quick as possible. Uh, the war is 18 months old now, and you think about how long it takes to deliver things, to train Ukrainians and so on. If they'd got real with that very early on, and if Ukraine could have had these capabilities, let's just kind of rewind and think back to last autumn, when, you know, September and October, when Ukraine did have a lot of counteroffensive uh, success, not just pushing bit by bit, but really breaking through and taking large amounts of territory. If they had, and that, that's when Russia was at its weakest as well. We, mm-hmm. That's before Russia decided to mobilize. That's before. Um, Wagner and their, and their prisoner recruitment uh, happened. That's before their industry started to really kick in and adapt to to you know, um, the reality of, of what this war is look, looking like. And so it does make you think: like, what if that decision was being made was made much earlier uh, to give Ukraine tanks and long-range missiles and and you're totally right that there are still things that are being withheld that could be given, and that, again, that's a political decision. Um, and and it's a question that I think needs to be asked to to the people in Washington, in Berlin, uh, in in Paris, everywhere. Like, what what is the motivation of your weapons policy to Ukraine? Is it to Ensure Ukraine's survival and prevent Ukraine's defeat, or is it to give Ukraine what it needs to win by taking back all these territories? And it, it just sounds so simple, but you know, there's a, there's more and more attention being paid to this now because because now there are not many more kind of explanations, no excuses in, in the sense of oh, we can't send tanks because that's too much, we can't send uh, planes because. That would be too escalatory, you know. This idea of red lines and so on. Um, you know, they 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 could have had they, those concerns, but now but now they've been proven to be misguided, and and we're still not seeing. A lot of what could be what could be sent being sent, um, and and there's also, as you said, the delay, the kind of relaxed pace. I would say, oh well, you know, all buy the books, all following the the bureaucracy to um, to slowly, you know, okay, we'll get the dusty tanks out of the warehouse, do all the checks, and and yeah, the the price the price of of those decisions are always going to be measured in in lives of, of the Ukrainian soldiers who have to go forward without without enough uh, protection basically. Yeah.
2: And Ukrainian yeah. civilians who are being yeah. under of attack. Every... Being, yeah.
1: Yeah. Killed. Killed. Awesome. Yeah. And also the economy. I mean there are so many aspects, right? Of this yeah. touches yeah. every single aspect. And the
2: psychological of the Ukrainian statehood. And psychological, psychological. Everything. I mean I I you know deal with ukraine on a daily basis and i mean i don't know one person who has slept more than a few hours mm-hmm. because you're constantly being awoken by air raid sirens and you know and i mean sleep de- deprivation is uh is uh, considered mm-hmm. torture and this is what is happening on a daily basis and not to mention what's happening with children who hear a thunderstorm and mm-hmm. for the rest of their life are going to think that's, you know, uh, bombs coming, animals, elderly. I mean, it's just even the psychological Everything. effect. Uh, it's going to take, you know, Ukrainians a very long time to, to, to mentally mm-hmm. get better after this is finished.
0: Yeah. It's funny you mentioned the thunderstorm because that, that really is what it is uh when when you hear that um everyone looks around and they have the same you know whether they've been close to the front line or not you know well if you're in kiev you've heard these loud explosions uh whatever happens and and yeah it's it's a worry i mean people think in kiev it's it's pretty safe but but there are still people who who really get kind of anxious and, and panicked by this and and will be will be for a long time uh, not not to mention what it's like for people who who have uh, trauma from being under occupation as well um from from being much closer to the front line um you know uh I, people ask me how i'm doing but even though i've been close I, i've honestly been quite lucky not to have anything really nasty happen to me and and i just can't imagine what it's like for for people who have um it, it it changes you in in a in a very deep way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to move maybe closer to the front line. Okay, for a moment, mm-hmm. Francis. Um you opened you said something before, uh, that Russia was at its weakest in the fall of twenty 2020 twenty and you've seen sorry, twenty twenty two. Sorry about that. Um 2022 going into okay the winter, uh, basically we wanted to know a little bit about okay how the troops we had seen and the Russian troops themselves were quite disorganized in the beginning. Then we seen as you said this breakthrough right in uh, the fall of 2022. Uh, what first of all what is the latest on you know the Russian let's say, situation, okay, at the front lines? And um, has there been an increase or a slowdown of weapons that are getting to them over the past several months?
0: So it's a good question, and it's it's one of the, I guess, the biggest unknowns that will potentially decide, you know, where we will stand uh, when this counteroffensive culminates. And, you know, the, military jargon is this term of, of culmination every offensive has to have a culmination point eventually it happened in the, in the in the autumn last year and and so that's i guess one of the most important unknowns in terms of understanding uh, how far ukraine can make it before before that point uh, is reached because uh, we see changes on the map uh, but that's just a very small fraction of, of the whole story of what's happening. There's the biggest question, and this counts for both sides as well, is the question of attrition, of, uh, of how, how their, what, what side has lost how much uh, in terms of personnel, in terms of equipment and ammunition, and how, how much they'll be able to keep going forward. So uh, with the Russians, again, we, we have the data from the general staff every day they post about russian losses and it's debatable about how um, obviously how accurate that can be although if you look at it relatively over time if you look at for example the the russian personnel losses that ukraine posts every day uh, you can see that it more or less matches up with with what we see on the battlefield so when when they were kind of doing these human wave attacks in in winter and things were getting really dire that they were losing almost up to a thousand uh, men that's dead plus wounded um, every day. So now the figures are around 500, uh, 600. So, um, you know, you you can tell that from from those numbers that there is an increased intensity of uh, Ukrainian artillery fire. You can see how perhaps these are, new tranche of uh, cluster munitions from the US have been put to use uh, very well uh, by the Ukrainians we also see a higher uh, a much over the counteroffensive we've seen a much higher rate of artillery losses um, from on the russian side not just from the general staff data but from also a lot of a lot of videos we see coming in we see uh, ukraine using FPV drones and the HIMARS munitions that they've saved up a lot. So so there there's a method to this and and although yeah, it's difficult to say the exact casualties of, of either side at the moment, um, during this counteroffensive, offensive and it's really hard for Ukraine because they're facing not only soldiers but all these mines and so on. Um, you can you can see that uh, the Russians are suffering losses too. The big question is, is are those losses high enough and is the overall kind of damage being done to, to the Russian side high enough to uh, initiate some kind of collapse, whether it's a, a local collapse, uh, a route uh, uh, or something like that. And it's, it's hard to say at the moment, I'm quite, uh, not. I wouldn't say pessimistic, but just just cautious about this cautious. Um, because, yeah, for example, we see we see units, uh, occasionally we see evidence of a paratrooper unit being moved around from one area to another. Mm-hmm. If we talk about the Bakhmut uh, advances that Ukraine's being made, uh, as I said, that's kind of separate in a way from the southern counteroffensive, which is the big strategic push, but uh, it's also done with the aim of drawing a lot of Russian forces away from defending the southern front line. And um, you could you could see that effect at the start, but um, it, there's always a, a different possible explanation that you can have, but it's a positive one and a negative one. If you see troops being moved from one area to another, it, it can seem like, oh, they're potentially – in a bad shape and, and they need to plug the gaps here. But another commander in the Bakhmut area, he was saying, well, we've seen a lot of much higher quality Russian units come in to our area recently. And his explanation was that Russia actually felt that they were doing fine in the south and they were holding the Ukrainian offensive pretty well. And so now they had more units to, to spend uh, in sure. the in the Bakhmut yeah. area. And yeah. we see further north in Kupiansk uh, that... Russia is attacking as well and so you you at first you think well you know if if the situation was so dire for them then they wouldn't be attacking somewhere else but then there's another explanation that they're attacking specifically so that Ukraine has to move its its reserves mm-hmm. to another area uh to defend so yeah again it's it's a big unknown it's it's very hard to get um good any kind of reliable uh data on that and you know, you should definitely avoid falling into the trap of seeing a bunch of cool videos of of Russians getting getting knocked out here or there, and thinking that you know, wow, it looks really bad for them. Or or seeing one video of a, of a soldier who who's pretty depressed about its situation, maybe complaining about lack of supplies. That mm-hmm. that's that's the the one thing I talk about, like just avoid taking these little snippets and and vignettes and and making conclusions about the overall um, situation again as i said that's i think the most important thing for for how this counter-offensive ends up for me um the fact that ukraine's moving forward still and seeming to commit more and and, and they're quite positive about it it suggests that there's a reason they're doing that so they they see the situation a lot better they have much better data on on where things stand with the Russians and the fact that they're still moving forward in that southern front line where we know the defences are at their thickest yeah. and most dense, then in in a way that's still a good sign for me.
2: Good.
1: <laughs> Hopefully it <he Yeah, laughs> continues that yeah. way. Yeah, we're <laughs> going to be talking a little bit about, no, the southern front in a bit. Yeah. But I think Olga wanted to ask something about Purgotin. Yeah. What did you want to ask?
2: So, um to uh, move on. Last August, September, when uh, Ukraine began a successful counteroffensive, we saw the fractures happening, specifically with Prigozhin coming out, the Wagnerites attacking Defense Ministry, and I mean it pretty much, you know, it kept getting more and more serious. You saw a fight on the front lines between the Chechens and the uh, Wagnerites. You saw both killing Russian um, military personnel who were either trying to escape or or surrender. And it, I mean, culminated into a rebellion. And basically, we're seen surrounding the political situation in Russia the simplest terms a shitshow. And then we see this alleged death of Prigozhin. If If he's dead. And the rest of generals and, you know, other popular military commanders, there was a video floating around recently of uh, General Popov, who basically had (laughs) recalled his conversation with Gerasimov and had, uh, you know, claimed to have choice of words and has now since apparently been exiled in Syria. So you're seeing basically this is not how a country fights a war. When you have so many divisions and factions and, you know, and now we recently heard Rusich is leaving. Rusich is Russia's Nazi paramilitary group who's been fighting in Ukraine since 2014. They announced they're leaving the, um, Ukraine because of Russia's um, refusal to get involved with one of the arrested leaders in Finland. Has all of this, ha- has there been any effect on the front lines for uh, with Russian troops?
0: So again, yeah, it's um we were all watching the I guess the Prigozhin uh, I don't know what's so called proper. the mutiny, the rebellion uh, from from Kiev soap uh, opera. Yeah, so with 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 bright eyes and and I think it's it's fair to say that it ended uh, quite disappointingly uh for for those in Kyiv uh, I think we just we just wanted to see a bit of a battle outside Moscow even if he had no chance we just wanted to see <laughs> one <something. laughs> one battle um but um of course it's worth remembering that Wagner at that point had been taken off the front lines they had Prigozhin had pulled pulled them out of Bakhmut and as i said that was the that was the point exactly when they finished taking Bakhmut but Ukraine also started moving forward on the flanks of the city. And so, um, so yeah, it's, you can see that overall Russia's defense of the front line has not fallen apart, uh, has, has held pretty well, especially in the South, despite the fact that general Popov, uh, Popov was, you know, in charge in the South and he was very vocal about, about issues that, that, weren't being addressed in, in the way, uh, the whole war was organized in his area. Um, but yeah, I think the, at the end, it's worth just looking at the political, um, kind of contest here. And although it seems there are lots of different people with their own kind of agendas, people, people's main motivation is self-preservation in, in this area and that that does come out in weakness when you have the rebellion for example and you have the fact that Russia's rest of the, the rest of Russia's security organ did not respond and did the way they should the FSB and the National Guard just kind of rolled over and and you just <laughs> They um, were
2: bulldozers <laughs> and, making holes on yeah. the
1: way to Yeah, they were. They sent them out on the yeah, road.
0: They had time to get the bulldozers out but um <laughs> but that was it yeah i I don't really see that they could you know suddenly uh fall apart or or suddenly become less effective in a way that enables a a quick ukrainian breakthrough uh anywhere what i think is interesting in the whole uh aftermath of the Prigozhin drama soap opera is is the removal of wagner as a fighting force uh from from ukraine and It's not really relevant in the context of the summer and the autumn where we expect Ukraine to still have the initiative. Um, But I I think it is relevant for the future because, you know, at some point, probably before winter, this offensive would probably have to culminate. And over winter, like last winter, Russia would have their own offensive plans. And last winter we saw very clearly that, um, uh, you know, Wagner's, the way that Wagner attacked was the most effective among a lot of very ineffective attempts to, to take a lot, of, a lot more Ukrainian territory. You saw the Ministry of Defence uh, attack around Kreminna in Luhansk Oblast trying to take back Liman. You saw them uh, lead large-scale offensive around Vuklidar also around Avdivka, and none of those attempts really went anywhere. They were all uh, beaten off in Vukhlandar. It was truly in spectacular fashion. And it was only Wagner with their really special combination, I guess, of experienced uh, combat-hardened mercenary soldiers and and these waves of of tens of thousands of, of people from the Russian prison system that could... Do some kind of uh, effective job, and before I think before May, before the the Prigozhin-Shoigu conflict really escalated, um, I think there was still a chance for you know Prigozhin to once more receive more favor from Putin, for for Putin to take stock of of the whole situation and and see that well this guy at least he could deliver something. And so, you know, let's let him go back and recruit thousands more prisoners, let's give him more resources, more ammunition, and and so then there could have been some kind of scenario in which the Battle of Bakhmut which was just incredibly brutal, incredibly painful, I think now looking at the statistics, easily the largest single battle, single engagement anywhere in the world, uh since the Second World War in terms of casualties, if he could repeat that again somewhere else, whether it was at or Vuklidar or somewhere else, you know, that, that would have been bad news for Ukraine. And it's probably a good thing that they've been pushed out of the picture now.
1: Excellent. Good. Bye-bye. Good riddance. Yep. Good riddance. Actually, have... yeah, yeah. So, Francis, where I want to get to in this question is more about the West and the materials that are necessary for Ukraine. You said before that, you know, they they should be giving the materials for Ukraine. What you know, what is the big question here? Yeah. Um, you know, what is their strategy, right? In the end, as you know, as uh, we said before, you've also argued that it should be as fast as possible. Correct. How can we actually appeal to European and also you asked to try to get them to do this because, you know, the winter is coming. You're absolutely correct. This is going to be another campaign, a winter campaign. So first of all, I guess the question is, how can we appeal to the Allied powers so that, you know, they can take maybe a little bit of vantage? We're going to get into, okay, after this question, exactly what is happening on the southern front. What do you think? What do you think, Francis?
0: Personally, I mean, I, I don't know about a specific public advocacy strategy on, on whose part. I mean, Ukraine, I think, under Zelensky and, and their diplomats have done uh, a great job so far with, with what they could do. But I think the overall line of argument for for the European population as a whole is is first and foremost for them to understand what the nature of Putin's Russia is, and in in the sense that it's it's 100% an aggressive uh, fascist regime, basically filling out all the characteristics of of, of fascism, um, which is looking to conquer and conquer territory and and basically draw those lines, you know, draw the dots and and not give any room for for some kind of strange uh, realist, kind of Russia apologetic uh, propaganda discourses, talking about you know how this is our um, strategic partner or how that we owe them something for defeating the Nazis in in World War Two. I mean, obviously, people in Eastern Europe get it. I won't talk about Hungary, but um, mm-hmm. people in in Poland and the Baltic states. Czech Republic, Slovakia, you know, they all get it because they remember. They, they remember what it was like when Russia was strong and Russia just occupied um, their, their territories, brought in totalitarianism on the, you know, under a facade of, of, of liberation. And I think for Western Europe, they should get it. They just need to look back a little bit further in, in their history uh, to what that was about and. And maybe it's possible for Zelensky and his diplomatic team to focus a little bit more on that on that um, parallel. We've written about it here in the Kyiv Independent. Uh, Timothy Snyder, of course, has been a very uh, outspoken voice on this. I, I really just think we should stop framing, uh, stop being afraid of the word fascism uh, in in this sense. Um, we can talk about Russia being a terrorist state. It is. But in a way, that's not that useful because any country who's ever killed a civilian wrongly can be called a, ter- a terrorist state, whereas whereas yeah. here we're dealing with something a lot scarier and a lot darker.
2: And to touch on uh, something Francis said, I mean, I've been, sadly, uh, uh, monitoring um, uh, Russian propaganda for a long time. And, I mean, they very clearly have always stated, you know, they wanted Ukraine. I The 2014 um, invasion of Ukraine and illegal annexation of Crimea, those military plans actually leaked in 2008, pretty much around the time hmm. after Russia um, took parts of Georgia, again, occupying. Um, and the thing with Russia is they don't hide it. You, they have literally, you know, shown on their night, nightly news, like, uh, talk shows, you know, plans of how they're going to take Lithuania, how they could sweep through Estonia, how, what they're going to do with So, with corridor, how they're going to take Moldova. So Russia's telling you that Ukraine is you know right now they're objective but when we're done with ukraine then we're going to move on and take moldova and take this and you know and whatnot so it's like they're telling you they don't hide it just like here in the west everyone's you know haggling is it genocide not genocide russia is telling you very clearly we need to wipe out every single last ukrainian that exists and that's it destroy the, the it's not a culture it's, there's no history there. It's all made up. It's fake. Burn all the books. Kill every single Ukrainian. And here people are like, "Well, do you think Russia really wants genocide? I mean, they're telling you this. They're telling you yeah. them. And yeah. They've changed. They've changed their
1: history books." uh, But
2: they're changing Ukrainian history books. Exactly. Exactly. You know, you know, and and they're taking Ukrainian children and brainwashing them to Mm. basically erase their ethnicity and, and to make them, you know, Russian. And and that's it. And I mean, it's sickening. And the thing is that the West really needs to wake up because Russia is telling everyone what they're going to do. They told everyone pretty much. I mean, yes. uh, at least anyone who monitored that what was going to happen with Georgia, what, you know, what was going to happen with Ukraine. They they broadcast everything,
1: and people and another, yeah. Them.
0: Another thing that that popped up uh, one or, once or twice, maybe more times on on those ridiculous shows. And of course, you know, it, it's. You do remember it's it's a bit of a circus, but you just see that mentality that they yeah, yeah. that they have. Uh, one thing that they they mentioned, you know, something about uh, ceasefire and negotiated ceasefire, and mm-hmm. and I think it was Yan, uh who who said on one of these shows, you know, of course, you know, of course, if there's a ceasefire, it's just going to be so we have enough time to prepare and go again. Like she mm-hmm. just said it herself. Like yeah. <laughs> um.
2: Anyway. That snowflake yes. yes. no uh, blocked me on Twitter, I think, Ooh, it was yeah. a few years ago because I called her beast in Russian. <laughs> and she blocked me right away. No, but that's the thing, that they tell you what they're doing. They tell you what they're going to do. And, I mean, frankly, this goes back to the Soviet Union and how they treated, you know, uh, countries that they uh, occupied and whatnot. Now, getting to the counteroffensive. We have heard recently that Ukraine is making significant breakthroughs um, in several locations in the south, um, that they're making gains in Zaporizhia region. What do you see happening, and where do you think is it going, and is it going to be um, pretty much a repeat of what we saw last uh, September where Ukraine was able to take back a lot of territory and lightning speed?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so first of all, I think one should drop expectations of of uh, that kind of repeat because it's just a completely different uh, operation, completely different terrain, and a completely different enemy. With lot, uh, way better prepared. We know about these defensive lines. We know about these minefields. So what happened, for example, in Kharkiv, was just not not possible when you can't, you know, uh, just pierce through and take huge amounts of territory um, because there are more lines of trenches and, and minefields. Um, and and Russia has prepared for half a year for this exact moment. Uh, whereas back then, it, it, you know, there was the whole deception of, with Kherson, and and they really did well to target an area where Russia wasn't expecting anything at all. Um, so, yes, in that sense, we're at a very interesting time, I would say, in, in the counter-offensive in the sense that we have these three axes. So we have the two in the mm-hmm. south, Orikhiv, uh, Robotina, then you have Likan of and then you have um, uh, the area around Bakhmut, which is could be described as, as more of a fixing operation, as I mentioned earlier. Um, the, it's pretty clear now that Ukraine is committing to, for, for the Orikhiv area, Robotina area, to be the main push, Um uh, so that's where we've seen the most de- de- developments recently. And that comes as no surprise because strategically that's the biggest prize, you know, to cut through to the cities of Tokmak and Melitopol, cut off the Russian connections to Crimea and so on and so forth. Um, but that's also where the Russian defences are the most dense and mm-hmm. thick and, and strong as well. Uh, and and so for, for many months, well, since the start of the counteroffensive, Progress has been territorially very slow. Uh, they have, yeah, it was just last week that they wrapped up the capture of this one village, Robotina, which was the first village on that sector of the front line that that basically came under attack. And and now the reason I say we're at a very interesting time is because we see them pushing Further, uh, and if you look on the map, we know exactly where these you know big defensive lines are because we can see them from the south. Mm-hmm. So all the people that make their maps, you can click a button and and you see where they are. And right now we see the early defensive lines around Robotina have been breached, but now they've come up against probably what can be called the main line of this complex, mm. the Suravikin line or whatever you want to call it, um, and. And that's what Ukraine is looking to breach. Now, I don't really like the word breakthrough in this sense because, you know, Mm. what I said earlier is like a breakthrough. You you feel like that's going to be the, uh, I know this word in Russian, the pirel this kind of uh, real, you know, this is where everything changes kind of moment. Whereas we know that these defenses have been designed so that an early breakthrough uh, doesn't become a large strategic uh, breakthrough. So they've pushed past this line or they're on the brink of pushing past it, which is which is a very interesting moment to watch because now they could build on that. They could um, kind of widen this bulge of territory that they've taken. They could uh, take more of this line. You know, instead of breaking through it, they could move along it, uh, which, mm-hmm. which might be easier. And if they can do that, then then it will be a, a huge step towards uh, getting something out of this counteroffensive that can really be called a success because then they could get a lot closer to Tokmak and if I think you know, if if we're speaking in in three four months time and Ukraine has liberated Tokmak that will be that will be huge and it will it will be a sign that, that this was all worth something. Um, so definitely next few weeks will be very interesting to watch. Um, I, I just don't want to speak too soon or
1: mm-hmm.
0: pretend I understand what I don't, because again, what's probably more important, as I mentioned earlier, is the state of attrition of of both sides. So you know, the fact that uh, we know how, this has been costly uh, for Ukrainian units. Uh, I think it can. It is fair to say that some of the reserve units that were committed uh, were committed earlier than they would have liked to, because mm. they would have preferred to use them to exploit a breakthrough rather than, mm. you know, that requiring that muscle to to just make that breach in the first place. Um, and it can be argued that it maybe wasn't a great decision to to use to rely so much on these new brigades because maybe months and months of contact of combat experience is more important than having a couple of shiny leopard tanks and and bradley fighting vehicles Mm -hmm. um but that's something that you know the real experts will will figure out when we see the end of this end of this counter-offensive um and what's more important is, is what's going on on the Russian side, as we mentioned. So the attrition that's been taken there, are they in a place where um, they can keep committing more reserves? Do they have that ability to to contain, um, to potentially use the time to build more lines of defense further mm-hmm. back? Um, so, yeah, what I can say for sure is that it's 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 an important time right now. The next few weeks of fighting will um, say a lot. I think by the end of September we'll we'll figure out basically where we stand uh, with this counteroffensive. But, again, I'll repeat that: just the fact that there has been this progress uh, in an area that has been pretty much stalled for a long time. This recent progress, it it speaks a lot to me. It says that they – they feel like there's, there's a good reason to still, to still push forward because that's uh, in, and I've written about this before. One of the big differences between the way Ukraine and Russia fights this war is the, first of all, the, the grasp of reality. So you don't have a dictator at the top who's demanding victory from a military that um, cannot deliver it, but has no choice. And on top of that, the the value of human life, I think, um, is, is definitely something where you see a big contrast between the two sides. It doesn't need to to be explained. And in that sense, you know, these Leopard tanks and Bradley infantry fighting vehicles have been very valuable. We, we've we seen evidence, we've seen data about how they protect their crew a lot more. And and that's mm-hmm. something that's valued here. It's not something that's valued in the Soviet Russian way of war Um but compared to these Soviet armoured vehicles, you know, uh, it is good to see that people more or less, even if they lose the vehicle, they they come out of the battlefield alive.
1: Yeah, we've seen some footage about that. Just to follow up on what you're saying, Francis, Rammstein is coming up you know, in the next, what is it, September the 18th. Are they going to be talking about you know, what is necessary, obviously, for Ukraine uh, and that kind of thing? Do you have any word at all?
0: on it so uh things to keep an eye out on i think um it looks like we may be getting close to germany announcing the taurus uh, long-range missiles uh, which are similar to the french and english storm shadows but but actually better longer range Um, so it will be interesting to see what ukraine uh, can do with that um I still don't understand why the American attack MS long long-range missiles haven't been mm. provided yet. It's the mm. biggest no-brainer in my view. But <laughs> but even with those things, you know, again, it's you have to be cautious about expecting you know, those kind of systems to completely uh, change the game. Mm. Uh, we know Ukraine's gotten better. They're developing their own long-range missiles and drones and they've been starting to use them pretty well um but from what i uh, can tell you honestly in the war um at the moment the most important resource and weapons are shells maybe drones as well and 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 people um the kind of battles that we're seeing the kind of wars that we're seeing that's that's the most important thing of course tanks and and, uh, you know, helicopters, planes, long-range missiles, logistics, they're all very important. But just when it comes to that brutal numbers game, that, that war of attrition, that that's that's the most important thing.
1: Okay, so drones, shells, and people. Speaking of um, which, before I let you, uh, Olga, okay, wrap this up. Um, In early June, okay, uh, we saw a secret and a very strange, can we call it that, uh, joint operation was carried out between Hungary and Russia. I don't know if you have any information on this. It was 11 uh, Ukrainian soldiers that after being held in captivity okay, um, for an unknown amount of time uh, were then moved from Russia to Hungary.
0: Did do a little uh, joint investigation with a colleague from Radio for Europe about about some of the more de- the some of the more murky details about that uh, it was a bit after the, the the story had died down in the news cycle which was uh a shame because it was so many questions left unanswered how could this have happened and the Hungarian government kind of got away with pretending that they didn't have a role in this where it was just impossible in every way possible to to not have a role and it was announced by the deputy prime minister the, the second most powerful in well the second yeah after orban in in the country um saying that yeah we did it I did it and and the Maltese church helped with logistics and then out comes the foreign minister and said no this was an agreement between the two churches and we had nothing to do with it Um, Mm. so again it's just I mean it's not a surprise um, when it comes to to Hungary having the yeah, having the, the the motivation to do this, uh, I think the the conclusion to our piece was that uh, obviously they they were definitely involved, and they probably had an idea in their minds that they could spin this as some kind of uh, political win, where Budapest is playing the role of of uh, mediator, of negotiator, and also helping. The Hungarian uh, Hungarian minority people in Ukraine, which has always been a sticking point for them, yeah. um, but uh, they lost control of the narrative and very quickly they were in damage control because everyone else looked around and said, "This is
1: this what is ridiculous
0: doing? that that yeah. you had a, a role in this whatsoever," and they, they just mm. denied it and and slowly the story died down. I think at one point the Ukrainian spokesman for the military intelligence said that they had information that they were planning uh, in a second such transfer but I think maybe that was in the works but I think that the way it was reacted to not at all positively Uh they
1: just,
0: probably, okay. probably just turned them off just, that idea no
1: yeah. no no unlike what? the Pope <laughs> yeah. who doubled down by the way yeah on his on his remarks but anyway let's let's skip ahead yeah, just—I uh, hear Hungary, I hear the Pope, and it's—it's just—it's a mere—I well, I, don't understand why. We'll
2: know. put up the story um, on our uh, show yeah. notes, and Thank and you. Um, you know, and I—I I mean, when it comes to Hungary, it's Putin's puppet, Orban. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I, I expect everything and anything from him. He's uh, getting very close to being <laughs> Lukashenko. <laughs> so, yeah. um, and I actually am worried. Um, and. Something to monitor going forward towards our elections. I'm worried um how that Hungary will be used as as a point of attacks on US elections and elections across Europe. Um Russia in twenty sixteen mm-hmm. did it from themselves using their operatives. Twenty twenty decided to shift to Ukraine, use their Russian agents inside of Ukraine, and now I'm worried that we're gonna mm-hmm. see Hungary for twenty four. Um, To wrap uh, this up, there are discussions of F-16s. It looks like they're finally going to be sent a year and a half after the fact. But it looks like they're getting their USS committed to training um, F-16 pilots. Um, We've had several European countries who said they will deliver F-16s. How much of a difference will it make on the battlefield? Will Ukraine be able to get um, control of their um, airspace and disrupt Russian attacks? And then lastly, um, last winter, we saw Russia's strategic terrorist you know strategy of specifically targeting power plants and making sure that Ukrainians are left without water and heat and electricity in the coldest, most brutal you know days of winter. Do you see Russia repeating this um, strategy this year, and do you think Ukraine is better prepared to protect um, itself this year than it was last year?
0: So uh, on F-16s, I think um, it's not uh, a very, I would say, yeah, eccentric opinion to say that it's not uh, really going to impact the battlefield in the short term. We know how long this takes. We know Denmark's plan of giving a few at the end of this year, but a handful more next year and, and a handful more in 2025. Um and so far it's Denmark, uh, Netherlands, uh, Norway has said they'll give some, but we don't know details yet. Uh, so this is a long road, and it's a long road for Ukraine's air force, which has been obviously very, very badly mangled by by this war, although it's still functioning. I saw planes outside Bakhmut, which was nice to see. I'm pretty sure they were ours. Um, <laughs> no, I, I am sure. Um, but... Uh, it's a long road and and at the moment ukraine still it's military still fights using a soviet style doctrine based on land warfare uh, based on artillery armored vehicles and infantry and and so again you have a, a qualitative uh kind of news that you see but if for need for it to make an impact it's, it needs to be quantitative so it's still going up uh, against the russian air force with hundreds and hundreds of, of fighter aircraft and it's also worth remembering about russia's air defense capabilities uh, so ukraine so far in this war has done a pretty good job of keeping the russian air force this huge russian air force out of the fight in ukraine thanks to Mm. its own air defense much of which at the start now it's slowly being replaced but much of which at the start was just a legacy of uh the soviet era air defense systems which ukraine had so if you imagine if ukraine's air defense was enough to keep the russian air force out of the fight russia's air defense will probably you know not uh Russia's Air Defense and Air Force together will, will probably be enough to, to you know, limit the impact of uh, and prevent Ukraine from, from being, turning into the kind of military in which air power is a big part of, of the way they fight. So in that sense, uh, but you know, F-16s are important for keeping Russia's Air Force mostly out of the fight for them to not be able to fly around freely. And and it's something to, to look forward to, uh, but uh, not something I think we can expect to, to make a huge difference uh, very soon. Um, as for the winter mass missile strikes, um, yes, it's on everyone's mind. Uh, everyone's kind of preparing for it mentally and physically. I see here in our office, we've uh, brought out our big power banks and power stations uh, Mm. ready for that kind of eventuality. And like the the civilian population will definitely be better prepared. But uh, the big question is, of course, the energy infrastructure itself. Um, And there's two kind of sides to that. There's, there's, apart from what Russia decides to do, I think everyone is in agreement that they will do the same thing again. Um, then it's a question of the state of the energy infrastructure, because unfortunately, although they've done incredible work to, to keep it all online and and get it going pretty well, uh, basically as soon as the mass attacks finished, it's, you know, it hasn't, it hasn't gone back to full capability. And we don't know, it's very hush, hush strategic uh facility things we don't know exactly what the state Mm. of of the infrastructure is but it's not it's not 100 so you know russia has less to destroy i guess in in an attempt to to cripple it again i don't think they will but then there's also a question of air defense um which is another tricky one because a lot of ukraine's air defense is still using still soviet air defense systems which use soviet um air defense missiles which ukraine doesn't produce and can't really produce because they're quite complex and they're only produced in russia uh and so we've got more air defense from the west uh and and ukraine's gotten better at shooting down the iranian drones which are specifically designed to in big swarms kind of overwhelm and exhaust ukrainian air defense um so it's going to be it's going to be a new a new battle in in the skies. I think it's fair to say that Ukraine won the battle last winter. They kept their grid up and running. People more or less learned Mm -hmm. to deal with the outages and, and they came out in spring pretty much fine, but there's going to be another one this, this winter. I think everyone's pretty sure about that. And uh, it's going to be a bit of a different numbers game, but let's hope, let's hope they can, they can do the same.
1: Yeah, yeah. So Francis will be looking out mm-hmm. for, let's say, the next uh, the next few weeks, is what. You no, know, that uh, what you've been talking about, and all of this information, and we'll see what the next few weeks brings. Right. To this is going to be a fundamental moment, I think. You no, know, uh, between everything, yeah. and then how, you no, know, the winter also uh, also wraps up as well. Olga, did you want to add something? before we No, I think we actually Francis. covered
2: everything. I just yeah. wanted to thank you yeah. for no your worries. time. Hopefully you'll come back and join us. Um, hopefully uh, you know, as we see more results of, of mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. what's happening on the front lines. And hopefully um Russia's front lines will collapse. Yeah. And I think uh mostly I think I will just repeat Francis's um, you know, very important statement that the U.S. and Europe must stop saying we're going to support Ukraine for as long as it takes, and and what they are thinking that we're going to do as fast as possible to get everything yeah. that is there so we can end this war and so there's you know an ending because right now long as it takes okay a decade years
1: months yeah, what are we talking what is, about yeah.
2: exactly so I mean so yeah. the Washington if you're listening Washington and and. Uh, <sighs> Germany, speed up the delivery systems. Yep. Let's wrap this up. Let Ukraine, you know, get its back, country as back as quickly in. as
1: possible. Exactly. That's right for regeneration and reconstruction, right? Which is necessary. Yep.
0: Thank,
1: Thank you, you Francis. Francis. Thank you. No
0: worries. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the work you're doing. And um, yeah, stay in touch definitely, great. and let me know definitely. if you come to Kiev. Great. Okay. Have a great day.
1: Hi, everybody. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to help us out with our independent work, please subscribe to Kremlin File on Substack and on our YouTube channel. Kremlin File is hosted by Olga Lauten and me, Monique Camara. Our production team is headed by Maddie Kapirov and theme music by Oreste Camara. So please don't forget to visit our Kremlin File Substack for links to our socials and to wherever you'd like to listen to podcasts.